Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our now famous session of uh, Friday morning with uh, Dr. Shriver. Uh, today we have Dr. Rogers. Uh, I understand his middle name is Craig Rogers. We're going to call him Craig today. Uh, he didn't want me to say that, but I, but I, I will. Uh, we have a really outstanding session this morning with uh, obviously the uh, typical up-to-date with, uh, with John about COVID-19 and everything new. And then Steve is going to address a, a really very serious issue, which is uh, suicide and depression and all the things that are currently increasing in number and severity during the COVID-19 era. A couple of things before I move on, I want to uh, celebrate uh, the great work by one of our emergency medicine colleagues, uh, Dr. John Brancato. And so he, uh, you can see there that uh, he will get the 2021 Chairs Award for Compassionate Care. Uh, John, uh, thank you for partnering with patient and family experience to manage patient complaints and grievances with professionalism, respect, and empathy. You do this really in an outstanding way. A number of people reached out to me, um, and uh, so we felt compelled to give you this award, and, and thank you. And in the midst of COVID-19 and the emergencies, you're able to do this with, uh, with care uh, in, in difficult circumstances. That makes a huge difference, so thank you very much for what you do. You'll get a plaque, a real one. We can't give it to you because we're socially distanced, and you're somewhere hopefully having coffee uh, with your kids uh, and with Tom, and or maybe you're in the emergency department, so you may not even be here, but we'll hopefully you'll get this to you. A couple of things before I pass it on to John. Uh, February is Black History Month. It's been celebrated number for a number of years. And uh, I, I found this uh, really interesting uh, tidbit, which I think you, it, it, which is very apropos the vaccination that John will talk about. Uh, let me read it. A few details are known about the birth of Onesimus but it is assumed he was born uh, in the African continent in, in the late 17th century before eventually landing in Boston. Uh, one of a thousand people of African descent living in Massachusetts in the early 1700s. He worked with uh, Minister Cotton Mather from his congregation in 1706. Onesimus told Mather that uh, about that the centuries old tradition of inoculation practice in Africa by extracting the material from an infected person and scratching it into the skin of an uninfected person, you could deliberately introduce smallpox to the healthy individual, making them immune. I mean, we know this from, from history. Consider extremely dangerous at the time. Uh, Cotton convinced Dr. Zabdiel Boylston to experiment with the procedure with smallpox epidemic in Boston in 1721, and over 240 people were inoculated, opposed politically, religiously, and medically in the United States and abroad. Public reaction to the experiment put him uh, put Mather and Boylston's in, uh, lives in danger, despite records indicating that only 2% of patients requesting inoculation died compared to 15% that were not inoculated. Uh, so Onesimus' traditional African practice was used to inoculate American soldiers during the war, the Revolutionary War, and introduced the concept of inoculation to the United States. So, so there you go. I thought that was a little bit of a, something that John probably didn't know about, so I you know, figured, figured I'd teach him something today, and that, that's what, what happens. I'll introduce uh, Steve after John's presentation. He's actually here, real life, uh, fully vaccinated, immune to, to this virus. I'm going to pass it on to him and to share all the good things, and then we'll have Q&A at the end. So, John. Thank you, Juan, and uh, welcome, Connecticut, New England, uh, and uh, the other states who are with us today. Um, let's see if I can advance. There we go. We have a lot to talk about today, and I think you'll find the tone has changed a bit. Um, I think my next slide, instead of the good, the bad, and the weird, which I sort of like, it'll be the good, the bad, and the hopeful next week. 
So there's a lot going on. Um, and you know, the parable, the, the metaphor I wanna to use today is it's a marathon. You can see uh, we were struggling, helping each other as a team uh, in the race. Um, we hit the wall, that's the individual bending over in marathons, you sort of hit the wall around 20 miles. Those of you, who, those people can keep going, keep going, some of them fall out. We got, we got our vaccines, you can see the vaccine in the water and we will get to this finish line. This marathon will end. And, uh, and I think you can see the finish line now. It's gonna be messy getting there, but we will get there. And, uh, and I think that's gonna be my theme today. Now in the United States, there's a steep decline in new cases. I, I think we thought we would never see this, but we are. And uh, it's going down. It's not where it was um, uh, at our best. And we're still over 100,000 cases a day, which is not where we need to be, but we are in the right trajectory. This is really important because as immunization rolls out and new mutations hit the United States, we've got to get this under control as fast as possible. The data look very good right now. So this is, this is good news. Juan wants me to be in front of the... Uh, hospitalizations are decreasing. This is good. It lags a little bit in new cases, but you can see it's only 100,000 people hospitalized with COVID in the United States. A lot, but it's a lot better than it was. And this is allowing our medical systems to have breathing room, our ICU beds to be open to manage other illnesses besides COVID. Very, very important. Good news this week on that. And furthermore, now deaths lag. The problem is a lot of these people in the hospital can be there for weeks. You see that on the news and, and, and um, the deaths are delayed, but that's stabilizing and going down as well. It was terrible a few months ago, a month or so ago. Now it's down to about 3000 a day and heading down. And I think uh, this is really important as well. So the United States overall has gone through that very bad post-holiday peak. We're, we're heading in the right direction. And this is why there's a sense of urgency to really get immunizations out so we can break the back of this before the new strains really take over in the United States. So we'll show you some data on that shortly. Now, other countries, Canada, for example, has not been as hard hit as the US, but their pockets of hotspots and particularly Quebec has been an area that's had great difficulty controlling the pandemic and the islands um, have not because people can't go there without quarantining. So Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island, those areas have done very, relatively well, as had the far west, northwest territories of Canada, but Quebec has been challenged. Now, if you look at the numbers in Canada, and I had done a back of the envelope calculation, uh, it, it's ten, tenfold smaller than the United States. And if you do the data, the United States has been hit twice as hard as we should be based on numbers. It's about two times the deaths, two times the numbers of new cases. So to me, I, I think that shows we probably could have performed better in this pandemic, but we're getting in the right direction currently. Now, Connecticut also reflects what's happening in the United States or overall our cases are down and the test positivity is down to about three and a half percent. Remember over the summer, it was less than 1%, but we're going in the right direction. You'd like to be back in the 1% area again but you can see numbers of new cases are sharply down from the holidays. Very good news. And we need to continue to sustain this as we roll out the immunizations. Deaths also are way down in Connecticut. Uh, this is also great news. Um, after the holidays, it peaked and was heading straight up. We've gotten that back down again, although not as low as it was over the summer, which would be where I would shoot for. 
and our hospitalizations are slowly declining. They're not hitting up anymore. They're back down. We still have a lot of people in the hospital from COVID in Connecticut and, and frankly, all over New England, but these numbers are stable and going down. A good position to be as we roll out immunization. So we have some nice news this week that I haven't really been able to share with you for several months. Now, the immunization rates, however, this is where all our focus needs to be right now, are lagging nationally. The uh, lighter colored states are ones that have really barely scratched the surface. As you can see percent immunized and dark is around nine, 10%. There are very few states who've gotten to the nine or 10% category. Connecticut is one of them. And, uh, and this is a challenge. Now you'll notice that Dakotas have, they were terribly hard hit. Uh, public health measures were lax. They had a lot of deaths and a very high rate of infection. But to the credit, particularly of North Dakota, uh, they're really rolling out the immunizations and, and they're hovering around 9% as well. So there are some states taking this seriously in a very organized way. West Virginia has people going out to rural areas and immunizing on site. They've really worked hard on this. This is what every state is going to need to do to get this under control. And we need a national strategy that doesn't vary state by state to make sure we can do this. And I'm optimistic we are heading in that direction. Connecticut is in the top 10 regions for immunization. Now, if you look at states, we're in the top three or four. But if you look at American protectorates, American Samoa is the best. They have 20% of their population has been immunized. Uh, and it's easier because it's an islands and they're able to get out there and do that. Alaska is doing very well also. Uh, and there's an article actually, they had somebody out in a dog sled going to some rural native community, getting, getting people immunized. But Connecticut's way up there. Uh, we're doing well. It's around heading towards 10%, have gotten at least one dose. We need to get those second doses in people. We see the curve going down. And if we can do it before mutant strains hit where the vaccines are less effective, we will do well with this. So this is, this is sort of um, where we're sitting. It's a good place. Unfortunately, the rest of New England, people drive back and forth, has not been as successful as Connecticut, particularly Massachusetts. And this will be a problem because as you know, this virus does not respect state lines. This is why we need a unified approach to get as many people immunized as possible in every state. Now there's a lot going on. Despite all of this, we're learning new things. And I think these are very valuable lessons for the future because I don't think this is going to go away. Now, the mutations that are now in the United States uh, are three, there are probably others, but this is what we know about. The B117 is the one I've told you about over the last few months. That's the UK strain. 32 states uh, have reported this variant. You know it's much worse than this. This is just what we've, the CDC is just ramping up. States are just ramping up to look at this, to sequence isolates. And uh, so that strains the United States and it will probably become the dominant strain within six weeks. Um, however, the South African strain, which is the B1351 strain, is also here. It has been found in many less places. This is very important because I'm going to show you that that strain has multiple mutations in which the vaccines are probably less effective. Now, there's a Brazil strain that has been found in one state and one person, probably more than that now. And that has multiple mutations. It's unclear what this does, but there's a worry because in one area of Brazil, previously infected people got sick again from this new strain. So 
there's some concern that the original COVID, SARS-CoV-2 strain um, protection will not work for the P1 Brazilian strain. So this is out there and in my mind increases our sense of urgency to really get everyone immunized as fast as we can. And remember, the more viral replication we allow to happen, the more mutations we're gonna see. So as soon as you get viral replication down, we're gonna stop seeing these mutations all over the world. And the other point I wanna make is this needs to be a worldwide strategy. It's not gonna help if we immunize everything in the United States and a country that couldn't afford vaccines has billions of viral replications and new strains uh, that prevent the vaccines from working can enter into other countries. This has to be a worldwide strategy and impoverished countries are gonna to need to be given help to immunize their populations as well. Otherwise, this will not end. Now here are the CDC data looking at mutations. Um, and I, I showed you the, the numbers, but this is what the map looks like. You can see the UK strain is, is um, pretty much everywhere. And so this is gonna be something to uh, really watch. Now, there are new data coming from post-vaccine sera. People immunized, this is with the Pfizer vaccine. And looking at what happens with the UK variant, and you can see here that there is a decrease in the ability of serum from Pfizer immunized people to neutralize the UK variant, but it's not much. It's not much. And most people feel that post um, Moderna and Pfizer immunization will be okay for the UK strain. There is a decrease in neutralizing antibodies, but it's not that much. The AstraZeneca vaccine, new data, very exciting. First off, if you look at this table, you can see the efficacy after one dose, that's the top bar, is in the 70s. Uh, that's pretty darn good. Now it's not 95%, but 77%, 78% after 90 days efficacy to prevent infection, clinical infection. These are very good data. And it may be that the AstraZeneca, that's, remember that's the vaccine that uses adenovirus and non-replicating adenovirus as a vector, could be a very useful single dose vaccine. Um, now the other very interesting thing that was sort of a slide, now I do wanna say, these are not perfect data. It's a preprint from Lancet. The media has been all over this. I've looked through the data. You know, they have multiple doses and it's a little complicated and probably not as good data as I would like, but it's very promising. And you'll see on the bottom uh, where it says any PCR positive 22 to 90 days after immunization. And there was a 67% reduction in that. So it looks like, although it doesn't prevent carriage, it greatly reduces it. This is really important data because if we know you're immunized and you're much less likely to acquire a transient subclinical infection and give it to somebody else, this vaccine will help very much and break the back of the pandemic. So exciting, promising data. Uh, they're not the best in the world. Um, everyone is gonna need to be more aggressive peer review of this, but very promising data about the adenovirus AstraZeneca vaccine which I believe will be licensed in the United States shortly. And by the way, the other interesting thing is that for the AstraZeneca vaccine, the second dose, it's actually better if you wait. And in this study, they looked at um, 
the uh, giving uh, the vaccine and then measuring afterwards, and it looked like after 12 weeks, that's on the bottom, you actually got a better response. So this is very helpful because we don't, we don't have the vaccine supply to give exactly at four and six and all. But this says you can wait three months and the AstraZeneca vaccine booster dose is actually better if you wait. So I think this also will help us a lot rolling out vaccines uh, in the next phase if this vaccine is available. So good news. Now anaphylaxis. Um, uh, so the data show so far, there've been 21 cases of confirmed anaphylaxis after 1.8 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. So it's basically one in 100,000. And that's actually higher than you see with other vaccines, which usually one in a million. They, there's some data, they drilled down on these 21 and 12 of them had previous history of allergic reactions to vaccines and me injectable medications and that sort of thing. And there's a hypothesis of still unproven that PEG, which is part of the lipid capsule for the RNA vaccines, is the uh, instigating uh, element of the vaccine. And in fact, there's some allergists now doing PEG skin tests. And some of those patients who had this allergic reaction right after being immunized have a positive PEG skin test. So more data, I think we're gonna figure this out. And my bet would be there'll be some adjustments of the vaccine um, formula to reduce this um, allergic reaction. So these are the data that we know so far. Now, I wanna talk about another vaccine. Again, this is, this is the good, the bad, and the hopeful today. The Novavax vaccine, you may remember from months ago, I told you that's sort of made in the old fashioned way in that they make recombinant spike protein. The way they're doing it's very clever. No stem cells, no human fetal stem cells, none of that. They're using insect cells, moth cells, uh, to grow up this spike protein. And they have a virus that shoots the DNA into this moth cell. The DNA is made into RNA. The RNA is then translated into spike protein and you make gallons of the stuff and you purify the spike protein. It's made in insect cells, no controversy. And it's the way the hepatitis B vaccine is made. So we've used this, it works. And the spike protein is mixed with nanoparticles and an adjuvant, a regular adjuvant that's used in other vaccines. And then that spike protein is taken up by the antigen processing cells, just the way I've shown you in the past. Those cells, goose T cells and B cells, you make antibody, you get memory, and it works. It's just like a regular antigen-based vaccine. So Novavax data are terrific. This came out a few weeks ago, and you'll see those really high bars um, in the middle graph are, are the post-vaccine neutralizing antibody titers. Thank you. And on the far right is what people get from natural infection. So the uh, Novavax vaccine after two doses gives you a better titer than natural infection. It's quite, quite strong response, uh, which is very promising. This is now in clinical trials and UK preliminary data showed 95% efficacy for the original SARS-CoV-2 strain and 85% efficacy for the mutant in the UK, the B117, 15,000 patients. So these are outstanding data um, and we are gonna have another vaccine that will be available. And it, this vaccine may be more palatable to people who are nervous about the new technologies this is an old technology, a standard antigen vaccine. It's not using any fetal stem cells, which has been another controversy. This vaccine may be more palatable to part of our population. I think it's gonna be very valuable. Now, unfortunately, 
what we've seen is for the South African strain, they're using Novavax in a clinical trial in South Africa, 4,400 volunteers, only 60% efficacy, or 95% of the infections are caused by the South African mutant. This is a problem. However, Novavax is already making a multivalent recombinant vaccine that covers this mutant. So I, I think we are going to see a booster dose from a variety of companies that will include these mutations in several months. And I, I believe this is a bump in the road, but this will not prevent us from getting to the finish line. We will be getting booster doses, in my opinion, but they will include these new mutations and companies are already all over it. So again, good news, another vaccine is gonna be available that uses standard technology. Uh, and I believe, I believe this will be licensed in the United States as well. And finally, we, oh, we talked, there were a lot of questions. Flu, we don't see any flu, and we finally got some data on this. The answer is, you're right, we're not seeing any flu. And so if you look at, these are graphs of influenza-positive samples reported by U.S. clinical labs uh, in past years. And those are those big curves upwards. Those are 19, 18, 17, 2016. And the red line is us now. <laughs> see, we're not seeing, there's a few cases. We sort of broke the back of influenza with all of our all of our physical distancing and masks. And, and you know, this is a lesson for the future. We got you know, this is something that, that will really help us when there's a really bad influenza epidemic in the future. We know what to do. We broke the back of influenza in 2021. Uh, it's really quite remarkable data. All right. Unfortunately, and I don't get it, the anti-vaccine disinformation continues. It's pretty active. It was a YouTube video um, with a doctor, Dr. Christiane Northrup, who's an OB doctor, who's board certified, and uh, basically tells us that the uh, vaccine is bad and uh, don't take it. There's a 99.9% .9 recovery rate. Why would you take an experimental vaccine? It's very disturbing. And, uh, you know, and then Bill Gates is injecting microchips into you. And I, told you, I told, showed you the size of those. It doesn't work. Uh, but it's out there. And, and it, it's accelerated. In that Dodger Stadium, protesters tried to prevent other people from being immunized. I and mean, if you don't want to get immunized, I'm good. You know, okay, I prefer you get immunized, but don't block somebody else who wants to get immunized. So this is accelerated to people protesting. This held up the vaccine line at Dodger Stadium for two hours. So, um, you know, it's out there. Our job, tell the facts. Tell the facts. Be transparent. Say what you know and what you don't know. And, and people will respond to that and consistency. And I'm very pleased, I, I will say, we're seeing a lot more consistency coming out of the CDC and others um, uh, uh, with messaging. And I think that's very important for people because people have been confused. So the good, the bad, the weird, it's in English today, um, Dr. Salazar, because I ran out of languages. Um, the epidemic in the United States is flattening quickly. It's going down. A national immunization strategy is rolling out. Vaccine is in short supply. It is urgent that we accelerate this process in every state, not just Connecticut, every state. The more contagious UK mutant is now in Connecticut and all over the United States. The South African multiple mutant uh, probably evades current vaccines partially. However, there are every company is already creating new vaccine versions to combat the mutation. And the technology to do this very quickly is there. It's, it's really a fantastic change for us. And there's a robust anti-vaccine disinformation going on. And again, our job is to get the facts out there, consistency and transparency. Thank you so much for your attention today. And I look forward to our next talk.
Thank you, John. Uh, great information as, as always. And uh, now we transition uh, quickly to Dr. Stephen Rogers. Uh, I, I think uh, a lot of people, a lot of you on, the, on this Zoom meeting uh, actually know him quite well. Uh, Steve is, uh, uh, has been on television multiple, multiple, almost weekly, if not twice a week, uh, on the news talking about uh, this major problem, which is uh, mental health and suicide in, in, our, in our young population. Uh, he's an associate professor of pediatrics, um, and he is currently the medical director of emergency behavioral health services. He's published extensively in this topic, uh, truly an asset to Connecticut Children's and to the Department of Pediatrics. And Steve's going to tell you about youth suicide recognition, care, and prevention. So please pay attention. This is uh, hugely important for all of us. Steve? Thank you, Juan. And thank you all for being here and allowing me to share some of this information that I find. Uh, super important uh, for all of our kids in Connecticut. Uh, so I'm going to briefly try to cover just three basic areas. I want to illustrate the prevalence of suicide amongst youth in the United States and then specifically here in Connecticut. I want to review the importance of providing universal suicide screening in your practice and how that is feasible. And then hopefully you all recognize the impact of the pandemic on youth mental health and specifically on suicide. So briefly, we see over 47,000 Americans die every year from suicide. That's one death every 11 minutes. Uh, in the emergency departments across the United States, we see over 575,000 people with self-inflicted injuries and over 1.5 million people attempt suicide every year. It's about $70 billion of estimated lost, uh, cost and lost lives. Uh, and more specifically to kids, over 5,700 young people die by suicide each year, and that's about one suicide every two hours. Looking at Connecticut, we see about one suicide every day. Uh, it is the second leading cause of death in our patient population, starting at the age of 10 and going all the way through to the age of 34. Uh, and I've added this pie chart just to reinforce uh, from a different data source, uh, the, uh, from DPH that suicide is the second leading cause of death in kids ages 15 to 19. Um, and I think that really illustrates the problem, but this kind of really brings it home for me. Uh, when you look at our, one of our youth risk behavior surveillance surveys, which is a great uh, way to look into the minds of kids because it's an anonymous survey and it's considered highly reliable. If you picture a classroom of 30 high school students, about how many said they seriously considered attempting suicide one or more times in the past 12 months? Most people would say maybe one or two. Unfortunately, it's about four students, and that's about 15% of kids here in Connecticut have thought about killing themselves in the past year. And this is the one that really motivates me. In that same classroom, how many said they actually attempted suicide one or more times during the past 12 months? I wish it was one or less. Unfortunately, it's about two to three kids. So about eight to 10% of kids in Connecticut feel that they've attempted suicide in the past year. So what do we do about it? Well, as healthcare providers and providers for kids, uh, we need to be aware that the Joint Commission issued a report in 2018 that hospitals and healthcare institutions need to consider suicide as one of their national patient safety goals. Uh, and this inspired us 
to develop a universal screening program here at Connecticut Children's, starting in our emergency department. This is just an example, and I don't expect anybody to be able to read this, but basically what this is showing is a pathway on how to implement universal screening. There are pathways for the emergency department. That's what this is. There's pathways for clinics. There's pathways for inpatient units. Uh, and so the work is done. These were made by a national expert panel, uh, and they're very functional. So we took one of these pathways, and we developed our own that fits our emergency department. We trained our providers who didn't feel comfortable talking about suicide, how to talk about suicide, uh, and to recognize signs of suicide using evidence-based screeners. Um, I think one of the quotes I heard years ago uh, from one of our prominent pediatricians was, well, I didn't go to medical school and train in pediatrics to be a psychiatrist. Why do I have to do this work? Well, we all have to do this work because it is an epidemic, and in a sense, it, possibly could become a secondary pandemic uh, if we don't start to identify those at risk. Uh, and basically what this chart or workflow shows is that we provide an ASQ screener, that's Ask Suicide Questions, as our primary screener. And that's, that's actually carried out by one of, one of our nurses when patients first arrive. If that's positive, we follow that up with a confirmatory screen that also allows us to assess their risk and provide the appropriate safety measures for those patients. Uh, this is the ASQ screener. I just wanted to point out and ask very, very blunt questions. The first question is, in the past few weeks, have you wished you were dead? Uh, notice they don't even use the word suicide. They don't beat around the bush. It's very direct, very straightforward questions that kids can understand. Uh, and this screen is validated uh, both by individual questions and as a whole. Um, we follow that with something called the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. Uh, this is a brief screener and risk assessment tool. And you can see it has yellow, red, I'm sorry, yellow, orange, and red risk levels after you use it so you can identify how to respond to that child's needs in that moment. So we applied these screens and we've tracked our data. Uh, and it's really impressive, uh, the results that we're getting. And this is basically the compliance by our nursing staff who have done an amazing job. They recognize the problem with just a one hour training course and some introduction to the screener. Uh, and they have actually reached a 97% compliance. And so for anybody that's ever tried to develop and implement a quality improvement project, you would know that 60%, 70% compliance is amazing. They've reached close to 97% compliance and that's because they're getting lots of positives. And I'm gonna talk more about that. And when you get those positives, you realize uh, how important this is to children and their families. This is their, our positive screen rate. Uh, and I just summarize it for you. We've have uh, screened over 16,000 kids in the past year. Uh, and 2,400 of them, or about 16%, were positive. And if we separate out the behavioral health patients, meaning patients who come to the ED based on a behavioral health need, if we remove them from this, uh, we're actually seeing about 5% or well over 700 kids who have screened positive who show up for something like a sprained ankle um, or some other type of injury or, or illness. Um, and 5% is a lot. We see well over 60,000 kids a year. You can imagine how those numbers translate. Uh, there was concerns when we first started this by lots of staff and even parents, like should we be asking kids these direct 
what some people considered scary questions uh, down to the age of 10. The reality is yes, because we have actually identified oh, well over 135 kids at the age of 10 who have screened positive. And in fact, 60 of them uh, even reported that they had attempted suicide in the past year. So this problem starting before the age of 10. And so I think it's a minimum to go down to the age of 10 when you develop a screening program. Our secondary screen or confirmatory screen is the Columbia. Uh, that's actually carried out by our provider staff. And so, and that gives us their severity score uh, or I'm sorry, rating. Uh, and we've actually reached close to 97% as well. And so our staff have really embraced this. Um, this kind of answers the question, this not kind of, this answers the question of, but what, do, what about all these positive screens? What do I have to do about them? The Columbia allows us to stratify their risk into low, moderate, and high. The red zones are the high risk. That's about 30% of the kids that we're seeing, maybe one a day. Um, so it's really not adding a huge burden uh, to our emergency department behavioral health services. Uh, and those kids, if they were seen in the community, would need to come to us. They would need to call 911 and make sure that they were safe. The moderate risk kids require some clinical judgment, partnering with families, maybe other behavioral health care providers. And low risk kids are going home. Uh, they're going home with a list of resources. Uh, we're working with parents to make sure they feel safe and that they'll follow up. Oops. Going back to that chart where I said that there were 16% of kids screening positive, this was over the first year. Uh, and this is getting to the third point of what's the pandemic doing to this? Uh, or how is the pandemic affecting our children? Uh, and so when we look at the new numbers for October, November, December, and January, starting in October, we started seeing rates of 19%. So it went from 16 to 19 to 24% in November and holding steady at about 21, 22% for December and January. We think this is an early indicator that our kids are falling deeper into crisis and they need our support. And we need to identify these kids so we can get them the services that they need. And that kind of asks what I think a lot of you are saying, well, if I do this, what do I do with them? Uh, if I get these screen positives. The high acuity or the high risk kids, they need to come to the emergency department and we're prepared to take care of them and make sure that they get the behavioral health care they need. Uh, for the low and moderate risk kids, we have an amazing service here in Connecticut called Emergency Mobile Psychiatric Services. Uh, and that's a simple calling of 211 uh, and they will come out to your office. They will meet the families at home uh, they will meet kids at school. They, they will do whatever is needed to get that crisis evaluation done, make sure that they connect to services. You also have access to access mental health. And this is for more chronic kids if we, you need help from a psychiatrist determining medications, adjustment of medications, uh, and all of the websites for these services are listed. And finally, we need to make sure our kids go home safely. And so if you do identify a risk, even if it's low risk, uh, we need to talk about lethal means counseling. And lethal means counseling is basically when we counsel families and patients that they should have restricted access or limited or no access, I should say, uh, to things like firearms and medications, alcohol. Um, we need to talk to families about making sure their firearms are safely stored, that they could lock up the medications. And this will significantly reduce the risk of kids harming themselves or dying by suicide. So in conclusion, suicidal behavior is frequent 
and obviously outcomes can be severe. A diverse, very unpredictable population of youth are at risk for suicide, so we need to universally screen for suicide. You can't judge a book by its cover when it comes to suicide. Some of the most successful kids uh, that we take care of could be contemplating suicide at any moment, and you'd never notice. Um, the pandemic is likely increasing suicidal thoughts and behaviors, but we can help. We don't have to be psychiatrists. We don't have to be mental health care professionals. We just need to screen them and make sure that we have the resources to take care of them if they're positive. So thank you. Here's some resources if anybody needs it. And this PowerPoint will be available, uh, I believe, online. Thank you, Steve. Always uh, very informative and very practical with uh, with important recommendations, uh, certainly at this, at this particular point. So we have a, a number of questions, and uh, what I'm going to do is ask a number of questions from John first, and then we'll go to Steve. Uh, and we have about 20 minutes. So we have some time. Uh, first one, has the WHO recommendation to labs to decrease the cycle thresholds for PCR testing been put into place to reduce false positives? Can you comment? You know, um, um, and, and how does and, and then clarify, John, how cycle is different from antigen testing. So what that's asking and suggesting, if you look at the way the PCR is done, there's a thermal cycler, goes hot, cold, hot, cold, and that makes the molecule get bigger as the um, nucleotides anneal, and then you detect that as a positive PCR. Uh, the WHO is suggesting uh, a change in those cycling to increase sensitivity. I don't know the answer of what Quest and our other labs are doing. I do know the data on the PCR sensitivity that we're seeing is quite good. There's some mutations that may reduce that a little bit, and we're going to need to watch that. So I don't know the specific answer of whether we're applying those suggestions in the United States. Next week, I will. I promise you we'll look into that, and we'll determine if that's happening. It's a great question, but I'm not sure uh, what we're doing in the United States because we have such a variety of molecular uh, tests being done. John, uh, there is a, a couple of questions in double masking. Can you comment on that? Yeah, actually, you saw me with a mask on initially. The reason I was trying to remind everyone, just because you're immunized, the masks are not going away. So that was a reminder for everyone. Um, you know, double masking, the, the new strains, as we mentioned last week, they bind with higher affinity to the ACE2 receptor. And that implies that a lower inoculum could get you sick. So it makes sense. If you have a simple cloth mask with one layer, you might want to beef that up. A surgical mask uh, on top of another mask would work, or a double cloth. So it makes sense if we know a lower inoculum could get you sick because there's better binding to the ACE2 receptor. But I think in general, in the hospital right now, for example, you're, we're getting temperature screened and, and probably just wearing a surgical mask, and obviously an N95 if you're seeing patients, and makes sense. I think if you're going to the grocery store, and um, I, I think it might make sense, knowing I showed you the map, the UK strain is everywhere now, it would make sense, in my view, to upgrade a bit, either wear a higher quality mask or a double mask if you're going to be around people who are masked and you don't really know who might be carrying the strain or not. So I'm giving you a nuanced response. Out in the public, I would. I think it's a time to probably up your game. Next question, is any data on the transmissibility of the virus from vaccinated persons? I think you, you addressed this yeah, partially. It's not a live virus. Uh, and so, um, uh, so you, you make antibodies to the spike protein and, and you've, you've got uh, immunity. We don't know yet, once you get that immunity, whether you can acquire a transient infection or subclinical infection and transmit that. 
So there's worry about that. That's why we're recommending if you travel, if you're out in the public, whatever, all the rules stay the same. In addition, if you're exposed to a positive, we're still quarantining people even though they were immunized. That said, I did show you some data today showing that at least one of the vaccines dramatically reduces the likelihood you're going to carry and transmit. We got to wait for more data, but the preliminary data for at least uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine was quite good. So we'll see where that goes. And Julie V. Hill, who's our uh, Department of Pediatric Administrator at UConn, says, for those of us that are not clinicians, although I would I would say that Julie is a, a clinician. She does a lot of a lot of work for us in, in uh, clinical trials. Can you explain what a PEG skin test is and why PEG could cause an allergic reaction? You know, it's polyethylene glycol, which is this uh, slippery sort of lipid, and it's used to encapsulate the mRNA because it works well to do that. It goes in your body, and then the RNA goes into your cells, and you make the spike protein. Um, the skin test takes a teeny, teeny, small quantity of PEG and you put it under the skin. If you get a welt, it would suggest that you're an allergic, you have an allergic response to the PEG. We don't fully understand why this is an allergenic molecule, but it seems that it might be in some rare individuals. So that's what the skin test does. We do have some local allergists in town starting to do that and trying to determine if the allergic people who are having a response to the vaccine uh, initially that's allergic uh, have a positive skin test, but I showed you at least in some of the people where we have followed up the anaphylaxis people, there there is a positive skin test. I do want to clarify one thing I see in some of the chat. None of the vaccines use human stem cells or fetal stem cells to make the vaccine. Really important. I need to clarify that none of them are using it. Some of the vaccines used um, human fetal cells to test the, the way the vaccine works. So I, I want to clarify, none of the vaccines are using uh, human stem cells in their production or, or what you get. But testing, some of them did use long cell lines that were derived 20 years ago or more. So I wanted to clarify that the Novavax vaccine uses an entirely non-human platform. It's insect cells. So that was why I brought it up. Thanks for clarifying that, John. Then there was a comment on the chat about that, the, the concern whether the you know human human fetal stem cells were used and then the, and again the, the companies have clarified this that these are long standing uh, cell lines that were present from 1973 some of these are HEK cell lines human embryonic kidney cells that are that are standard in the laboratory so you know please it's really really important that we understand that nothing again the the goal really there was to show how Novavax has bypassed any human cell usage but I think none of the vaccines use human cells in production and you're, there's no human fetal stem cell or any stem cell being injected into anyone. That's not what's been done with any of the vaccines. They are pure RNA synthesized in the laboratory with a little lipid layer. Yeah, and for those of you who are interested, there has been a, uh, from the Vatican, uh, there, there's been a, a very specific pronouncement from Pope Francis related to vaccination. By the way, he got vaccinated with one of the mRNA vaccines that was publicized recently. Um, who should be tested for variants and how do you test for variants, John? Unfortunately, the screening in the United States for variants is spotty. The CDC is doing some, some states are doing it, and it's not systematic yet. It's being upgraded very quickly, and the answer is you, you really can't. Um, I think what's going to happen, if you look at Connecticut, for example, what I think will happen is we're going to begin to survey more and more to understand where these strains are, and those data will probably be pushed out to the state, much like other data are pushed out on the website. So right now, though, it's not as um, robust a screening as I would like to see where these variants are, either in the state or in the rest of the country. Now, let me get Steve uh, on the podium there for a second, and because uh, there are a lot of questions related to his presentation. Um, 
Have the ASQ and Columbia screens been tested in the primary care settings? Uh, yes, the ASQ, the Columbia, I'm not sure the specific evidence, but um, I believe both have been tested in the primary care setting. ASQ is valid, uh, Columbia is evidence-based. Steve, is the ASQ available for schools? I don't know if it's been tested in schools, uh, but it's available for anybody. And there's a toolkit online uh, that folks can use to implement its use. And how helpful are the PHQ-2 and PHQ-9? I think that's for you, not for John. Uh, those are both, a new variant. You know, yeah, that those generalized screens, uh, they are good, and I think they're a great tool for primary care folks. But uh, when we're talking about suicide and trying to reduce rates of suicide, I think we need to do very specific questionnaires that have been validated, like the ASQ. What are your thoughts on the factors leading to the rise in suicidal ideation and failed screenings? Is there any data on suicidal ideation in kids who are going to school in person versus learning remotely? No, you know, we don't have data there. Um, it's really hard to connect that, but it just makes sense. You know, we've been in a pandemic for a long time. Kids are back to school and we're seeing uh, significant increases uh, in, the, in ED visits as a whole for behavioral health issues. We're finding these kids are, like I said earlier, deeper into crisis uh, than in previous years. And the system is really uh, full. The behavioral health system is full and kids are being stuck and uh, have been stuck in RED for days to weeks at times, um, waiting for the resources that they need. Uh, but we really have to work hard to identify these kids at risk for suicide and make sure they connect to services before they get that deep into crisis. Steve, a question from one of our orthopedic surgeons. Have you received any feedback from families um, about any negative effects of the screening, complaints and satisfaction service, having uh, you know, this is a family situation where they, they lost a niece to suicide. Uh, I strongly encourage your work, but, you know, the question is, are any families complaining? Uh, so we've screened at this point probably close to 18,000 kids, uh, and we've had less than 10, meaning single digits of parents who have refused to allow their child to be screened. I believe it was somewhere between six and eight. Uh, we've stopped even tracking that because we had such low numbers of refusals. Uh, the, but the, the idea here is not just the screening and the positive tests uh, to find positives, it's to identify us as a resource as well. So even if a child just hears us talk about suicide with their parent and why the screen is so important, that helps to normalize the conversation and it really helps to identify us as a resource for those kids that are struggling with thoughts of suicide. And then um, two, two, last, two questions, then we'll get John back on. Is there a correlation with increases of suicide thoughts attempts among kids in domestic violence shelters? I don't know specifically about shelters, uh, but I would imagine those that are exposed to domestic violence uh, will have trauma issues, and those that population who struggles with previous trauma uh, do have a higher rate of suicides. And for one of our uh, case managers from our, the HIV program, Angel Ruiz, uh, is uh, ASQ different or tailored for kids with special needs? Uh, no. So, you know, again, they, they have to just be able to understand the questions uh, and be able to answer them. Great. Thank you. Many more questions. Let's get John back on for, uh, this is the most questions I've seen in a long time. So people are really interested on vaccines. Um, Apologize, uh, I might have missed it. Uh, if you if you get the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, can you also get the Novavax vaccine? 
Uh, we don't know yet. Um, it's a great question, uh, and those studies need to be done. So the question, just if you get the mRNA vaccine, are you going to be able to get a different vaccine as a booster? And the Novavax would be one of them. We don't know yet. I do know there's some studies being done to look at this, because if you have the one-dose vaccine, for example, which might be licensed in the U.S. fairly soon, how are we going to boost them if that vaccine's unavailable? Could you give another one? Mix and match. And, you know, we do that with the H flu vaccine, for example. There are a couple of different companies that are making H flu B vaccine that have different carrier proteins. And so we do that. We mix and match and seems to work okay in, in most situations. So uh, stay tuned. We will need to know that. And uh, my bet will be if it's spike protein based, which they all are, it's going to boost, I mean, in my view. So my bet is it's going to be fine, but we don't know yet. We, we have to get those data. I do want to say that the. Um, Suicide talk, I, I, I really appreciate that. I, I do want to share something personally. One of our friends, family friends, their son committed suicide. And the ripple of that has been forever. And, and the fact that uh, we have resources and screening, and if you could just prevent one, uh, it's just huge. So I, and I know the stress on families right now, watching my son and daughter-in-law and their, their children is huge right now. So I, I, um, this is a, a really great topic. And thank you for being here today and sharing how we need to manage this moving forward and what the resources are. It's very important. So thank you. Steve, a couple, uh, or John, a couple of questions about uh, uh, why, if, if we're, we have been able to decrease so dramatically influenza and RSV, why is it not working for COVID? Well, the R value is different. It's a great question. So remember the early, I, I need to show that graph again of the various R values. That's the reproductive value of viruses. Measles is like 18. Every measles patient infects 18 other people. It's unbelievable. It's the most infectious thing in the world. Um, but I believe uh, the uh, RSV and influenza are below the R of two to three that you see for COVID. COVID's really infectious and um, it's different than influenza. And, and I think it's probably different than many of the other respiratory viruses we're used to. And unfortunately, the mutants are making it even more contagious. The R value is up by 0.7 for some of the mutants. So it's different. And I'll pull, I'll find the R value slide for next week and, uh, and we'll show you where these various, we, it's not in today's talk, it was months ago. We'll show you the various um, R values. But the reason is it's more contagious virus. Great. Um, there are a couple of questions about antigen testing. Are the antigen testings getting better, John? We don't use them. I think um, they have they're good screening tests, in my view, for a large population. Or, but the um, sensitivity, the likelihood of pulling a true positive, is below the PCR. Maybe in the 70s, 80 percent PCR is well into the 90s. Good lab-based PCR. So, um, again, I think if you're you're the most of the ELISA tests tell you that you're going to have to do a molecular test to confirm. So a negative. So uh, in our view at Connecticut Children's, we've not been using antigen tests to determine a positive or negative patient or employee. I think the clarification in Richard Segul is correct that if, if, if somebody is clearly symptomatic, the antigen, an, an antigen test is very helpful. I think screening for asymptomatic uh, individuals is probably not as helpful. Well, the only yes, Juan. The only problem is, again, the, since the sensitivity is less, if that person the test wasn't, it's not as good as a PCR. So you can get false negatives in a person who is ill. A positive antigen test is great. It's definitely positive. So you know that. But I, I worry a little bit in people who are mildly ill, the antigen test is not as sensitive as PCR and could give you a false negative. So that's why we haven't really been using that. But it's a good, it's a good clarification. Thank you.
Uh, another question, uh, somebody who, who got fully vaccinated and, and says vaccine patients in, in real time, and it's appreciated, great privilege. Uh, does that individual pose any risk to his or her patients as long as they wear a mask and eye protection? I think uh, like any other situation, before you were immunized, your mask, your eye protection, your hand washing, we have had extremely few nosocomial infections caused by providers to patients. Now, there's not zero. There was an outbreak at Bay State. Uh, in Springfield, there have been nas some national outbreaks where healthcare providers have given it to patients. It's been very unusual. I think proper PPE in general will prevent that. Now, that said, because you're immunized, you, you know, you might feel a little more relaxed, and I, I wouldn't do that. We don't know yet whether you could acquire a subclinical infection and transmit it. Good PPE use and staying with all the rules prevents nosocomial transmission to patients. We need to keep doing that. Two, two more for you, and we'll get Steve back on now. How do you explain the reaction that some are getting to the Moderna vaccine with puffy lips, cheeks, um, and these specifically for individuals who have had fillers like collagen injections for a variety of reasons? It's a great question, and the only thing I can think of is some of those collagen fillers have a cross-reactive molecule with what's in the vaccine, and, and I don't know if we've looked specifically to see whether these collagen fillers have PEG in them or other things that molecularly resemble something that might be in the vaccine. That's my hypothesis. I, I'm not sure any data has proved that yet. And, and then, uh, again, uh, last question, John, is uh, you mentioned this, but your thoughts on Johnson & Johnson getting approval? I think they are going to be approved, and I, I think we will shortly have a variety of vaccine platforms, RNA, a non-replicating adenovirus vaccine, and I think we'll have Novavax as well. I think we're going to have multiple platforms for viruses, uh, for, for COVID, much like we do for influenza, actually. And they all, uh, for the, re the regular strain, have very good efficacy. All right, let's get Steve back on for some additional questions. Steve, are there any plans to screen suicide in urgent care centers, and what would you recommend? Absolutely. I think they would have the same uh, results that we're having in the emergency department. Um, and again, it's just a matter of doing it. It's setting up a plan, doing the screens, and having a response already set up ahead of time. Another question from one of our uh, social workers. Um, uh, what suggestions may you have to help raise awareness in the community and to prevent successful suicides? Again, learning about suicide, normalizing the conversation, and just talking to our kids. Uh, so if you're responsible for the care of children, if you have children, we need to talk to them about their mental health, and we need to use the words like the, that they use in these screens. We need to be very upfront with them and ask them, have you had thoughts about killing yourself? Uh, those are not easy conversations to have, but that is our lab test. That's, you know, our vaccination uh, for suicide is talking about it, normalizing it, and making sure kids know that we care about what they're thinking about and how they feel. Steve, we, we often have many of our school-based wonderful nurses join this meeting. Um, is there any collaboration between your team and uh, school-based medical providers, APRNs, RNs? Uh, we're actually working with the state on a project that will include, include school-based uh, health clinics, uh, both their medical directors as well as the nurses that staff those clinics uh, to help support their behavioral health efforts and improve communication. Uh, with behavioral health providers as well as schools and families. And, and in line with that, one of our school nurses says, I'm a school RN. Should I be screening students I see frequently for somatic symptoms? Yes. That, that's, a, that's a hard yes, absolutely. Anybody can do the screens. 
again, you just have to have a response. In the state of Connecticut, it's very easy. You have 911 for high-risk kids. You have 211 for kids that you feel are at moderate risk uh, that need an evaluation immediately. Uh, and then again, informing the parents and making sure they connect to resources after they leave school is super important. And then when having a conversation with a child about suicide, would it be helpful or harmful to discuss one's personal struggles with thoughts of suicide? No, I think that would be helpful. Uh, you know, there's a myth out there that talking about suicide plants the seeds for suicide, meaning it, it puts the idea in their head and then they say, oh, now I'm going to go kill myself. I hadn't thought of that. It's just the opposite. Uh, it actually plants the seeds of hope. It helps them recognize that others understand these thoughts. They're not the only ones having them and that there is help for them uh, and they can work with somebody to get rid of those thoughts. Great. I'm going to ask uh, John to close the session. Thank you, Steve. And uh, while you do that, the, the comment, uh, so if you can come up, John, the comment is, uh, after vaccination, can grandparents hug their grandchildren? Uh, it's a great question, one in which I'm grappling with uh, in our own family, because we, we haven't gone down to see our grandchildren yet. I would be cautious at the moment. What I would do is I'd, I'd probably still have a mask. I would, you could hug your grandkid, you wash your hands afterwards. So I, I would continue to have some caution. Uh, I think um, if you're elderly, the likelihood you're going to get clinically ill, seriously, if you're immunized is very low. That's a big improvement from where we were a few months ago. However, we still don't know about transmission and acquisition of a subclinical case. Uh, and you don't wanna give that to your grandkid. Um, and so, because that could go through the household. So I think, again, some caution, but I think we've moved in the right direction. And I can tell personally, what I will do is I will wear a mask and uh, when we see our grandkid and, and I will hug him and I will wash my hands afterwards. And um, that's probably my personal advice. I can't tell you what the CDC or Dr. Fauci will say. I think that's realistic. Um, and, and uh, you know, as we've just heard, um, we are social beings. And, interpersonal interactions are critical for our mental health as well. So we, it's a balancing act. But I wouldn't run into your household if your grandkids throw the mask aside, hug, share food. I just wouldn't do that. Uh, I would wear the mask. I would continue to wash my hands. I would continue to probably use a separate bathroom and, and have a barrier so that in case you are subclinically infected and don't know it, you're not going to transmit it or you're the 5% who didn't get immune, remember it's 95% and then you could acquire it. So I would still use some caution. So light at the end of the tunnel, John, and maybe you can finish well, with that. You, 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 uh, you saw the, the data. I, I think the, the marathon is the good metaphor. It's not gonna be easy getting to the finish line. We will be there. We have all the tools we need now to conquer this. And if it's gonna be a booster dose with a multivalent vaccine, so be it, we'll get it. The companies are all over it. Um, we will have the tools we need to get through this. In the meantime, we have hard work over the next couple of months, keeping this decline going while we immunize so that we don't get a second surge from other mutant strains, much like the UK did. We can prevent that if we get the immunizations out as fast as we can. If we do get a surge uh, from one of these variant strains, we will have the availability, I have no doubt, of booster doses that will take care of it in the future. So again, hopefully everyone will walk away um, and I'll probably change my title next week to the good, the bad, and the hopeful. Thanks again for your attention today. Thank you everyone. We'll see you again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and then again a week from today for our session. Uh, be, be well, be safe, and uh, be, get vaccinated if you haven't. Take care, bye-bye.